Well, I was a little surprised they invited me to speak because, uh, you know, I'm just an old land developer from Lubbock, Texas, and just public speaking, even after seven terms, has gotten, you know, it's not gotten any easier. But, you know, I felt like I'd been getting a little better, and I was over in Muleshoe, Texas, not too long ago, and uh, I was giving a speech to a Rotary Club over there, and every once in a while, you know, the parents will bring their kids to meet their congressmen, which I always enjoy doing. You want to get these young people interested in their government. So I gave them what I thought was a pretty good speech, and as soon as I finished, little Sally sitting over to the left there, and she came running across the room. These Texas girls all shake your hands, and she stuck her hand out. She said, Congressman, I'm Sally. And I said, Sally, how are you? She said, Congressman, I just want you to know that's the worst speech I've ever heard. <laughs> and her mother was about four steps behind her. And she said, Congressman, I apologize. She said, you know, she's to that age where she repeats everything she hears. <laughs> so uh, with that, uh, you know, briefing, I just want to warn you. So thanks for letting me come. And, uh, you know, this cybersecurity is probably one of the most important issues facing our nation, maybe really facing the world, because uh, the whole world now is interconnected in this cyber world. Uh, as we see on a daily basis that, that people are utilizing that for productive purposes. We have a very robust economy that depends on the cyber world, that, that pipeline. Uh, but we also have people that are trying to do harm with that. And the fact that it's so interconnected makes it even more susceptible to attack and makes the, some of the consequences of those attacks uh, fairly major. Now you can imagine the disruption if someone was able to disrupt, for example, the financial services pipeline for just a few minutes or for a few hours. All those transactions, the billions and billions of transactions that happen on a daily basis, uh, the fact that we can, you know, you know, fire up our power plants and, and throttle them down, and all of the, the major infrastructure depends uh, on having a safe, silent world. Uh, today we'll have about 117,000 attacks. Uh, on the system, and that'll happen every day, and it happens at, at a lot of different levels. And so that's one of the reasons that Congress is, uh, you know, taking up this issue. The House passed a bill not too long ago uh, on sharing information. Uh, it's so important that the private sector, the government section, uh, sector, the uh, defense uh, department, uh, all of the various agencies, uh, be able to share information uh, because the threats, as I said, is 117,000. The fact that we all have to be on guard is an important part of that. So when somebody at, sitting at their post sees something that uh, is a threat to the system, we need to be able to disseminate that very quickly uh, within the system. And so the House has passed that. I uh, understand that the Senate is, you know, which we'll see, the Senate says it's going to do a lot of things that it never does, but that's another subject altogether. But we think they're, they're going to take up uh, their information sharing bill as well. And so when, when you talk about cyber, particularly in the, from my perspective in the financial services world, it really kind of talked about it in two ways. Uh, and one of those is, is the pipeline. And as I was mentioning a while ago, we got this huge pipeline uh, that communications and data and all kinds of transactions going through the big pipeline uh, on, on a daily basis. Uh, and it's, that's the important part of the infrastructure. That's the backbone uh, of being able to, for example, do payments transfers. Uh, and so making sure that the, the backbone is secure is an important part of that. Then uh, the other piece of it that I want to talk about a little bit today uh, goes with it is that you can imagine that you've got the big main, the water main, and then you've got all of these lines coming into the water main. So the water main is, is the major infrastructure, but, but the, the lines coming into the water main. 
uh, are equally as important because they all access the system. And so when we talk about the, you know, data security, uh, that's the information that uh, is out there in the system, particularly in the financial services world. And one of the things that I brought with me today was one of these. Now, how many people in this room right now have over $100 in their billfold? Yeah. So how many people, it's how many people have, have their checkbook with them today? And how many people have uh, one of these with them today? Yeah. And how many people have an Apple Watch with Apple Pay on it? Yeah. Okay. Now, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think the point that I wanted to make about that security and why, why it's important is that there's no personally identifiable information on this, this $10 bill. And when we used to give checks, basically our name and our address on there, our account number, and sometimes the merchant would put uh, our driver's license number uh, on, on the back of that. So there was a little bit of personally identifiable information on that. Uh, then when we started using these and the network that it takes and the, and the fact that this operates both as a uh, check and a, a credit extension of credit, a lot more of our personal identifiable information is involved in this transaction. Uh, and, and so as we've got more sophisticated, we have the most robust payment system in the world. Uh, and, it's, and, and the American people, the people around the world, rely on the fact that they can use that system uh, with a certain degree of integrity that their personal information will not be breached. Uh, and so what we've been working on is making sure that we keep this robust payment system, but also making sure we protect the integrity of it. And the integrity of the system is only as good as the weakest link. And so when you look at a financial transaction all the way from Betty's Bakery uh, to the completion uh, of going through the system, the acquires, and then the, you know, verifying that, that the person at Betty's Bakery is, is a valid credit card and then to the bank that that, that person is not with their credit limit. All of that uh, is, is a transfer of information. And one of the things that uh, is, is commerce has got more e-commerce you know, e and uh, is that people, uh, merchants uh, and people are retaining more of our, our, of our information. Many of the times they're doing it to obviously merchandise to us, but also for our convenience, you know, keeping our credit card information, for example, on, on their system. Uh, so that the next time we log in or say next time we're in that store that we don't have to go through a, a fairly uh, complicated process. So all of that is, is, is important and one of the things that we have to do though is we, if we're going to make sure that the whole system is secure, not only the little uh, fissures going into the main infrastructure because that in many ways is sometimes the, the way that uh, people get into to the main uh, is through the fissures. And so what we, will, we will need to do as a nation is, making sure that the system is secure all, all the way through there. And so we're working on doing that. One of the things you have to do is one of a lot of this is common sense and using you know the, the available technology. Uh, so one of the things that we've introduced is HR 2205, which is basically just says uh, two things. One, that, that there are certain standards that people uh, that are using the payment system, that are in, in, involved in the payment system, should adhere to to make sure the best practices of making sure that the system Secure. It's not rocket science. Uh, the, the other is is the notification process. And today, if you have a breach, is there's you got 50 states with 50 different you know uh, breach uh, requirements, uh, disclosure uh, 
disclosure requirements. And, and so one of the things we think we need to do is, is, is set a, a national uh, standard so that everybody understands it, so that when a large merchant, you know, like Target, or Walmart, or these, these people that have data breaches, they know what they're required to do. Uh, and the other thing too is bringing some common sense to that. So if you have a breach, it may not necessarily be one that you need to disclose. In other words, if all they got was my name and my address, that's in the phone book. That's, that's not something that would require a huge, massive disclosure. But if they got my social security number, my password, my, you know, some of my other personally identifiable information, you know, that's, that's another issue. Uh, so trying to bring a, a, a standard to the whole industry because, like I said, the weakest link, and, you know, the, the, the banks are already required uh, to do pretty robust, you know, data security protection. Uh, but some of the users uh, of this payment system aren't necessarily using uh, the same uh, standards and are not held to the same standards. We think it's appropriate in order to protect us, protect your data, and to make sure that we protect the integrity of the system. Uh, we continue uh, to make sure that everybody is, is on, on the same playing field because uh, you know we all enjoy the, the uh, convenience of that. Just mentioned a couple of things. Many of you, uh, how many people uh, recently got a card with a funny little chip, little chip in it? Mm -hmm. And uh, the EMV technology is, is going to replace that little magnetic strip on the back. Unfortunately, not everybody has the new readers, and so you're going to have the, the strip on the back for a while but this new chip will obviously help help fraud uh, be reduced at the point of sale and, but we're, what has happened in Europe when they started using the chip is that the fraud moves online and so even though you have this card with a chip in it today uh, it doesn't protect you from online fraud because if they have your account number uh, they have your uh, uh, security number and they probably look you up the phone book zip code for a pretty good chance they can use your, your, your credit card. There's new technology that's coming out that will basically uh, uh, provide an opportunity for uh, you to use on your credit card online uh, and that, that, that your identity would be disguised only to accept to the, the merchant and to the bank using it. And so encryption uh, and a lot, a lot of things that exciting technology. One of the things that we don't want to do in the payment space is get the federal government you know, involved in uh, providing, uh, dictating what technology we use. The technology is changing rapidly. It's fascinating. Uh, and, you know, it, think about the federal government. It'll take us five years to figure out what technology we finally agree on. By that time, you know, there's five generations of new technology. So what we're trying to do is make sure that we provide, you know, standards for everybody to protect them, but let the industry robust industry out there to figure out what's the safest, fastest, most convenient way to provide for the payment space. Um, so that's a little bit of an overview of what we're doing in the payment space. Well, thank you. Uh, <coughs> thank you once again for the opportunity to be back. It's always tremendous to be back with our bond. And I particularly appreciate it with your continuing attention on this important issue. Uh, I, also enjoyed Brandy's story about the young girl. She must be well-traveled because I saw her myself last week in Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed the last Congress where I had the opportunity to chair the Cyber Committee for Homeland Security, which John Radcliffe, my birthday partner, 
uh, has now taken over so ably. Uh, but I'm watching very closely all the good work John's doing, and particularly what's going on over in the Senate this week. And in many ways, it's a culmination of some fantastic work that was done under Brett DeWitt and the folks that are part of the Homeland Security Committee in the last Congress. In many ways, I said, we poured the foundation uh, of what will ultimately be a big building, but we poured the foundation. And that was a successful accomplishment of the network that allows the, the, the private sector and the governmental sector to share information in an effective fashion. What was left undone was the, the important work that deals with the questions of liability and privacy. Although we made tremendous inroads on the privacy side, having a bill that was endorsed by both the Chamber of Commerce and the ACLU, laying out the ground rules for how we can exchange and protect private information simultaneously. And I'm pleased to see, and I'm hopeful that in the coming week or two, that the Senate um, may be able to get this across the, the finish line, uh, dealing with some amendments, but we're relatively hopeful that this will get it back into a form in which the conference committee will really have substance to be able to work with. And I, I believe by the end of this Congress, we will make substantial improvement in the ability of, of, of information sharing, which is so vitally important. And you know, all you have to do is pick up the newspaper, 21 and a half million uh, identities stolen with OPM. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a mind-boggling thing. But then when you see John Brennan, the, you know, the head of the guy that's supposed to be in charge, and, and, and he gets hacked, but it goes back as well to, to something which we talked about, which we aren't doing anywhere near enough of, which is cyber hygiene. And that's the responsibility each and every one of us have to understand the systems on which we're participating and to understand what you need to do to protect yourself. It was reported, I haven't confirmed it myself, but he had a three-letter sign-in. Uh, probably CIA. It was a kid that had it, you know? So, Cyber hygiene, it, no matter who you are, you got to be starting to pay a little bit more attention. Um, and it's going to be continued. You know, there's Sony, Target, all of these things that had a remarkable impact. And we're only on the front end of what we can do and these steps that are being taken. You'll hear from my colleagues are important and critical things moving forward. But, you know, when I left the committee, I left it with, with a very sad heart because of the deep involvement with cyber. And I thought, well, it's great to be on ways and means, but tax policy and cyber usually don't go hand in hand. And then I really started to appreciate something, and I want to share it with you because I think it's a critical thing we infrequently think about because I started to realize what an incredibly important horizon ties into the responsibility in ways and means and effectively goes with trade. And a part of it really is the internationalization of the internet. It is now effectively global, and you're right on through third world countries. And so we are completely tied together for the first time as a world in a way in which we never were before, with every corner of the world. Uh, and now, as a result, we've developed this incredible uh, digital economy. And more and more of our economy is based on the ability to move information and assets, which are intellectual property, all kinds of things, through this mechanism. So as we develop, one of the realities is, uh, what are the rules of the road? And when we talk about legislation here in the United States, the things we control, of course we have an impact on what we can pass through Congress and work. But once you start realizing that we're only one part of this international network, and there's growing, you know, who is in charge of the internet? 
and really it remains something of a community uh, responsibility to this point in time, and there's even more and more effort on the part of people to push back from any particular government oversight. So the question of how you create the rules of the road for the internet, which means the free flow of data, which is essential to 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 our economy and to commerce as it's being as it's being conducted. So. One of the critical pieces has been the ability to give the president the trade promotion authority so that we can participate in the first place in which there will be real efforts to start to create some kind of a community of nations that will begin to design the rules of the road for the internet. And I have been a proponent of the uh, TTP, the, the Pacific Rim trade agreement for many reasons, but most specifically having traveled to Asia last year, spending time in Japan and Korea, and realizing the, and China, and the influence of China, and the importance of having a hedge against them. We could spend a whole meeting on that alone. But in addition, it is that TTP is the first place where, under the electronic commerce chapter, and I've had the opportunity, as a member of Ways and Means, we do get to see the, the terms which are being negotiated under the trade agreements. And as a result, there's a chapter that looks electronic commerce. And when we were in Rome together, I remember the presentation being given by the Italian authorities. What you're seeing is a lot of places in which local nations are beginning to create their own rules. And oftentimes, they can be impediments to the free flow of data across borders. Some of that's being designed purposefully because, let's face it, the economies of these other nations are looking to take advantage of technology and of the things that are developed here, and they see the utilization of that. If they can't get a piece of the action they drive, they try to create mechanisms that will allow them to do it. But by doing so, they create impediments to, to trade and the free flow of information, which are vital to the operation of the system, the very things Randy's talking about in a system. If, if it operates in the global context, you can't have it doing one thing in Spain, another thing in Italy, and a third thing in Malaysia. So how do we create these rules of the road? So the real, real first important is the cross-border data flow, the ability for information to flow across borders. But it's not just information, it's also services. Because a lot of things now are being done in our service economy. This is one of the things that we're exporting, probably the greatest growth American exports will be in services uh, in, in, in future years. Another issue has been data localization. That's the requirement. And I used Italy as an example. They will say, okay, if you want to conduct commerce in our area, you're going to have to store that data somewhere in Italy, which in and of itself becomes, it, it, it's a redundancy at best and can be an impediment. So the rules writing in there again, we're not going to allow countries that if you want to have access to the economy, the digital economy in our country, that you have to uh, actually locate that data within, within the country. Uh, expanding market access for technology products. Again, that's the reverse of this, but we've got a lot of innovation that takes place in America, and there are impediments that are put to the ability to move those products, and frequently those products are the kinds of things that help us secure the internet in a better way. It's not just things that will help commerce move quicker, but it can be also the kinds of protective 
capacities that if we don't have the ability to have access to that, then it creates a very, very um, uh, disjointed uh, uh, internet. We want to strengthen the protections for intellectual property overseas. Uh, obviously, the biggest concern is, is, is not just the, uh, it, we want to protect legally. The biggest concern has been the illegal violation, the outright theft particularly by China, of intellectual property, but you still want to go back to having rules of the road that we can implement. Uh, and the last thing, that there not be particular performance requirements that are done uh, in, in local communities uh, that would require you to do special things <coughs> in one particular country if you're going to engage in um, electronic commerce. So these have been provisions which, which are largely included in the TTIP uh, agreement. Now we've got a lot of work to do to determine whether or not we're going to get that across the goal line. But here's where I close my comments on why this is so important. This would create the first place in which you have a core group of 14 principal leading countries and the only place where you've got that kind of, of agreement on these critical issues which are going to have such an effect on international commerce. In the absence of that, oh, I should say, and if you're able to get that through with the Asian trade agreement, it will be remarkably influential on the terms of the European trade agreement, which may come in on its heels. Those will then put together the critical mass of countries around the world who will now begin to agree on at least some rules of the road. In the absence of those trade agreements, it goes back to the old status quo untamed. In other words, whatever is happening, bilateral agreements between a few countries and things of that nature. But the bottom line is what it means is Russia and China begin to set, by virtue of their size and their influence, some of the rules of the road on everything from intellectual property to how that flows. And that is going to have remarkably difficult and important implications on not just free flow, but also uh, American businesses and, and, and other things. Uh, China's ability to demand, for instance, that, a, so that a, a company who's got software give China the keys to their encryption technologies and other kinds of things. I mean, it's very scary stuff if you want to have even access to their markets. We don't have rules of the road that leverage China in that way. We could see a real sort of retrenchment in the ability for the internet to be a, a mechanism that works so efficiently. So there's an awful lot of play, uh, an awful lot at stake with the trade agreements. And if it doesn't go through, where do we stand? We're really going to have to start and focus on what will be a longer term challenge to try to get international agreements. And quite frankly, uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a huge lift. But we're in a place right now where I think the groundwork has been laid and hopefully somehow uh, we get the, either in this administration or the next one movement on those important agreements and set those rules in the road. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> uh, I very much appreciate the opportunity. This is my first chance to uh, be with the Ripping Group and to speak. Um, it's great to be up here with uh, Randy and Pat. I, Randy's been uh, just a terrific mentor to me and I, I hate to see him go. And, Pat, as you were talking, it dawned on me that you, know, you were born on October 20th in 1955, and 10 years later I was born. Um, you, uh, 
I was going to try to sneak into that number 39 meeting. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but then, you know, uh, uh, you were appointed United States Attorney by President Bush, and a few years later I became U.S. Attorney in the Bush administration. And, and a few years after that, you came to Congress. Then I came to Congress. You became the chairman of cybersecurity at, at Homeland, and now I have that role. So while most of the people in this room don't give a flip about your career trajectory, <laughs> I do. <laughs> but I, uh, I want to associate myself uh, with the comments of both uh, Randy and Pat. I think the one takeaway that you get is that uh, you know cybersecurity is national security um, and that when uh, they talk about rules of the road and, um, and changing the laws I mean you know the internet was built for opportunity not for security and now we're having to retrofit all the laws um, in this country and the rules of the road to to adjust to, to the fact that we're playing catch-up when it comes to securing our networks when it comes to cybersecurity and so um, you know, in my role at Homeland, building on the good work that, that Pat has done, and you know, as Randy mentioned, we did pass a, uh, a cyber threat information sharing bill earlier that now uh, in the House, that now the Senate is taking up their version. Um, and the good news there is, uh, you know, in the House it passed with broad bipartisan support, 355 to 63, uh, and I, uh, I'm expecting broad bipartisan support for the Senate's bill, and this is this is what's important in this area and in a place in Washington where it's, it's hard to find bipartisan support. Um, cyber issues are one where I think there is an understanding on both sides of the aisle that, that, uh, that we can't afford not to, to get along to, uh, to move forward important pieces of legislation. Uh, so, you know, I'm, uh, I wish the Senate would move a little bit more quickly with respect to that legislation, but I, but I think that, you know, that they'll get there and that we'll have an important uh, bill become law in that respect and you know just as um, you know Randy talked about um, you know building in financial services area and Pat talked about trade we, we have to do this in all areas so um, the fact is that uh, you know the bills that, that we're talking about not a single one of them is a silver bullet um, they're all building blocks and um, we have to just keep building so you know um, one of the bills that I've moved through judiciary and homeland um, at the committee level and be coming to the, to the floor of the House really sort of highlights that point that it, it, it applies everywhere and applies to what you and I used to do, Pat, in, in law enforcement. So you all watch um, uh, CSI and the shows where, uh, you know, the cases hinge on that strand of hair or that drop of blood that will, will prove the case. Well, you know, that's, that's true. It does happen in a small fraction of cases where DNA evidence is important. But in almost every law enforcement case today, federal, state, and local, um, it's cyber information that will prove the case. It is uh, an email that's been sent, or a text that's been sent, or an online purchase that's been made that is going to prove someone's guilt or innocence. And so I have a bill, uh, the Strengthening State and Local Cyber Crime Fighting Act um, that authorizes the National Computer Forensics Institute where um, where all of our agents and investigators, all of our prosecutors and all of our judges can go to be trained um, on these cyber issues to be able to handle the chain of custody with respect to that evidence which is just as important as the physical evidence that we see. 
And that also underscores the point that, that this isn't a federal issue. I mean, we're up here and we're talking about it in Washington, and there's this, I think, this sense that when you talk about cybersecurity and you're thinking of these cataclysmic um, events that can happen, that it's, uh, it's, it's the responsibility of the federal government and of uh, big national corporations. But the fact is, um, this is affecting every single one of us every day. I mean, if, uh, you know, Randy was talking about the, uh, uh, you know, the, the computer, I mean, the, uh, the chip and pin technologies and, uh, you know, your credit cards. And, you know, with all due respect to the president who says that global climate change is the biggest threat um, to our national security, um, in today, tomorrow, the coming days, weeks, months, years, decades, everyone in this room is more a threat from cyber intrusions and events than you are from what's happening um, with global climate issues. And so I think that underscores um, the importance that um, at the federal, at the state, and local level, these are, um, we have to provide solutions on all of these cyber issues. And so um, uh, I just look forward in, in my role um, to doing that. And as you can see, we've got great folks here in Washington um, that are uh, dedicated to this issue and really understand uh, the risks and I think that as unfortunate as it is that the you know that the Secretary of Homeland and the CIA director um, you know have their uh, email accounts hacked it underscores the point that everyone's at risk everyone's at risk and um, uh, that we all need to be united on these issues and united on this front in terms of um, our national security. So I know I want to leave some time for questions. So with that, again, thanks for the invitation to be here. Gentlemen, thank you. Jason, you did such a great job introducing these gentlemen. You get to either have the first one or the last question. Okay. I'll, I'll take the first question. Thank you. Thank you all. I think your, um, your comments all really highlight that cybersecurity is not just a single issue. It's many, many issues that you alluded to from uh, data protection, data breach prevention, critical infrastructure protection, information sharing, all of these things. Um, if the Senate is able to get the information sharing bill across the finish line and we can get that bill signed into law, what do you all see as the, as the next step legislatively? Uh, which issue do you think Congress, from a legislative perspective, either can or should take up next, either from a priority perspective or from a consensus you know, both sides of the capital. Let me jump on a point that I don't sure it's Congress in its role as legislators, but Congress in its role as representing the United States government. And I think it ties to the if we can create some of the rules of the road which which I mentioned, we have to do more to tie the world together in a law enforcement capacity. So that what what happens is people can go to these refuges third world places and conduct all of these cyber activities and you, you, you have difficulty getting proofs and other kinds of access to them and so we've got to strengthen the capacity to share information globally when we are looking at particular actors and other kinds of networks that threaten the entire internet so I think uh, I think that space we need to be doing more work and I think the other thing too is, is that um, got a lot of different flavors in the, in the government and the private sector and so we're going to give them the ability to talk to each other. I think that the other thing we need to do is make sure that there's not any impediments. In other words, it's one thing to 
allow you to communicate uh, and, and, and cover some of the liability issues, but, but operationally, uh, are the things in place that allow it? Because it needs to happen uh, in, in warp, was Star Wars at warp speed, or, you know, it, it, it's important that we do that in the infrastructure. One of the things I'm a little concerned about is when we look at all of the structures that are being uh, put in place in different committees and organizations, there's a lot of people, you know, dealing with cyber. And I think that the question is, is, is are they connected enough? And is is there some reorganization that should take place to make sure that we facilitate that? Because it can't be bureaucratic. It's got to be uh, pretty much a, a free flow. The only thing I'd add to that is, uh, you know, I think that, uh, that those decisions should be frankly made by the folks out there instead of us. So, you know, I, with respect to, um, uh, our information sharing bill, that was the result of hundreds of listening sessions with stakeholders in the industry across, to, you know, privacy groups. And that's really driven that legislation and why we've got such broad bipartisan support. And so, you know, for instance, next week I've got a, a roundtable discussion with stakeholders on the Internet of Things and the fact that, you know, my Jeep Grand Cherokee can be hacked and, and those types of concerns. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about um, expanding the Safety Act to, um, uh, to encourage the development of um, uh, cyber technologies in exchange for uh, liability protection. But really, um, you know, the real experts aren't, aren't up here and they're not in the, you know, they're not on the, in, the, in the halls of Congress. We have folks that are uh, dedicated to the issue, but really those decisions, I think, in terms of what's most important and what's next um, will come from those listening sessions and um, with folks like you to decide, you know, what's most important and what's needed. Can I add just one thing I neglected to mention, which I think is going to be on the front burner. I don't have a solution, but it's the issue of encryption. And it has developed to a point where encryption has created capabilities for the first time in which nobody can get inside these systems. It's a good thing to some extent because the hackers are having a harder time, but it's also created an impediment for intelligence and law enforcement. You know, it used to be out of warrant judicial oversight, you were going in, now you can have a warrant and still not have any access to information which can be very relevant, not just to criminal activity, but to terrorist activity and otherwise. So how we resolve the issue of encryption is going to be one of the next challenges that's going to come to the Hill, and it will once again inspire this back and forth with the privacy community and the law enforcement or, you know, whatever community, and it's not easily resolvable. Ralph Hellman. Yeah, I want to build on your comments on the uh, uh, rules of the road versus pres prescriptive technologies. Uh, one of the reasons we went from rotary phones to brick phones to the iPhone is because we didn't set very specific uh, uh, technologies you have to use. Uh, same thing with going from Betamax to VHS to DVD to live streaming. I mean, the, the fact is, if you set the rules of the road, the experts in the industry will figure out how to, how to do it right. And so I think what happens is sometimes some industry comes to you and says, we want chip and pin. Yeah, we think that's the thing that's going to do it. And then that basically locks you into one technology, doesn't let you innovate, and then all of a sudden the bad guys now know, hey, that's the one thing I need to crack. And, that, and so I don't know how you think about that, but I think resist the effort, uh, the temptation of somebody coming to you and saying, we've got perfect technology, you got to adopt it. Put it in law. Put it in, in, in the regulatory structure. Yeah, Ralph, I couldn't agree more. That's the reason in our bill is we, we really are trying to give the framework and then let uh, the uh, 
experts and let the technology drive that. It's changing rapidly, and, and, uh, uh, and the industry is demanding that and driving that. And so you're exactly right. We don't, we don't need to be trying to figure out what the right technology is. We just need to let everybody know what the, what the framework and the rules of the road are. Yeah, that was the very reason written into the, the, the framework that created the information sharing was the uh, aspirational uh, sort of line working with NIST and others in which communities uh, organized in their sectors help create standards that are, that are aspirational but not actually required. One of the things as an attorney I appreciated we discussed was if you have a, a line in the sand that says this is what you must do, there is a reluctance to do anything else because you advise your client. If you do that, you're protected. If you don't do what they say or you alter it, you open yourself up. That means you open yourself up to the inability to, to be responsive to threats as they, as they morph. This is a dynamic process in which as soon as you create in protection, somebody's going to be working on the way around it, and so you have to simultaneously have a system that appreciates the dynamism and doesn't lock us in on on line in the sand standards. Yeah, I, I agree completely with, the, with those comments. Uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, strength of this country is the in ingenuity and the innovation of its people, and you know, the last thing we need is government getting in the way with respect to how we, um, you know. Legislate to impede that. So I totally agree with uh, what Brandon Pat. It's a great question. Two questions right over here. Go ahead, Peter. Or, or... Well, I would just want to comment on um, Ralph's point that the payment system. You mentioned it being the best in the world. I guess I would argue that the chip system that's coming out um, is substandard, though, to what the financial services industry has rolled out worldwide. They have issued chips and pens in almost every other country in the world. And so in the US here we're doing chip technology, which is great, it is static, it is what the industry has gone towards. And while there's a max strike on the back of credit cards, they're still going to be vulnerable to the same hacking that we had before October this year. So, you know, there are some common sense, somewhat basic solutions that are proven around the world that could be easily implemented until we get broad adoption of Apple Pay and then MaxTrack is gone. You know, PIN is just another layer we can add. No one's arguing that it should be mandated in law. So I would just say, you know, we can continue the pressure on trying to get the most of the thing available at this time widely used. Well, and Heather, you you make a good point. I think the thing is when people start comparing the U.S. to to Europe, I think what you have to understand also is they have a little bit different. Uh, um, payments system in the system. When you go into Europe, they've got a little machine there. You put your card in there, but you're not. They're they're not verifying at that particular moment directly that that cardholder is about cardholder, and so then they download that at the end of the day. And so for for the merchant, since he's not going to be able to get any feedback from from the, from the card company, uh, they, they they have that extra layer of protection in there. Uh, but you know, uh, it's 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 chipped today. Um, but, you know, in, in the future, like you said, I, I can pay for things now with my watch. Uh, I mean, that technology is, it, 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 it is changing. And uh, we, by and large, let the industry, uh, you know, determine what they think is best because they have the, the greatest financial interest in that. Uh, 
but again, again, we don't want to be overly prescriptive. But uh, and, we, and we also, I mean, um, I don't want to be too braggadocious here, but you know, just because you're interested, it doesn't mean it's always a good deal. <laughs> Peter, actually, that was my question with, with the comparison between why are we behind Europe, and is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I mean, we, I think, I think. Um, Probably one we have is such a, a, a larger uh, payment system than, than Europe does. I mean, we, we dwarf, the, the, you know, just in the U.S. alone, it is, is more than, than, than all of all of Europe. Uh, and um, the industry adapts as they feel the pressure to do, do that. And I think it began to be the pressure because the the folks that are duplicating these cards became more sophisticated. I mean, now you can you literally go online and start ordering, you know, the strips. Uh, off the back of cards, and you know, and start producing cards, and I think people begin to realize that's that's a problem. Uh, but you know, I think when you go back and look at the credit card fraud, for example, and, and, and uh, I haven't seen those numbers recently, but then uh, return checks, and, you know, and so it, it's been an evolution. That's the reason I pulled out those those four ways that we have uh, you know transitioned from cash to checks to credit card, and now to you know electronic, and it's been driven by you know, one, convenience, uh, uh, profit, you know, you start losing a bunch of money on return checks, and so, you know, merchants probably today are losing a lot less money on, on fraudulent credit card transactions than, for example, they were losing on return checks, and so, you know, it's the evolution of course. But you can imagine uh, when, when, when Congress started the debate on, okay, here's how we're going to do credit cards, And Canfield. Thank you very much. As you've noted, uh, the government itself has had massive data breaches, and um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is going in the direction um, with, through their complaint database, which is completely mineable and in violation of four federal statutes. Um, and then they're now they've just come out with their final Humber rule, and they are going to delay the decisions on how that information is going to be shared, but you can see that they're going in the direction of allowing it to be shareable. So how, it seems like it's bizarre to me because, you know, the private sector is trying very hard to uh, keep everybody's information private, secure, etc. and yet you have a government agency that I think is ultimately going to result in having a data, you know, data that's very minor on practically every yeah, if you think the NSA is collecting a lot of information on you, look at OFR and uh, a lot of these government agencies, SEC, I mean, they're, they're, they, they know huge, have a huge amount of data on, about your personal finances. And, uh, and so that's the reason, you know, we have to make sure the whole system is secure. And we can talk about the private sector, and private sector is doing the, the, the things that they need to do, but is, these gentlemen are, are much more versed in that. It's, what we need to do at the government at that level. But the other thing is, is we, from my perspective, we need to really question does the government need to collect uh, all of the data uh, that it's collecting? It's, it's, uh, I think uh, the CFPB, they're, they're, they're monitoring, oh, is it 200,000 credit cards or something like that? It's, it's a huge, huge amount. It's going to be a lot more than that. <laughs> Innovation happens in the private sector. So that's where we need to be having that alliance. 
that will be the place where the next better protections come up. But I go back to the cyber hygiene issue in which uh, I, Brandy's point about us perhaps needing to reorganize even within the Congress and, and how we pay attention and focus on this issue with jurisdiction all over the place. Nobody's really in charge. And what you see is the oversight of numbers of the uh, cabinets and you know, agencies and things of that nature. There is a ranking system for how they're doing on baseline compliance with cyber standards. And you would be stunned to find how woefully behind many of them are, including the Department of State and others who, who for a number of years actually went this way. And so, you know, you've got people who are dealing with state secrets, and yet their systems are getting worse, not better, because there's a failure of any kind of meaningful oversight or focus on this issue up and down the agencies. I filed a bill to repeal the CFPB. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, we. You know, the truth is, though, it, it underscores a point. One of the reasons that I, if I filed that bill is of all the agencies we talk about, the CFPB is the least accountable. It's not accountable to Congress. It's the only federal agency that's set up without, uh, where we don't have oversight responsibilities. They don't have, they don't get funding from Congress through appropriations. They get the money directly to the Federal Reserve. And I filed a bill requiring them to have a commission and not have one individual be able to be making those decisions. 